<clears throat> okay, we are live. How is everyone doing today on this July 4th? Happy 4th of July to everyone that is celebrating the holiday. We have with us Alexander Mercurius in London, and we are very honored and very, very happy to have one of our most requested guests, and that is the one and only Andre Martianov. Andre, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be with you. Absolute pleasure. It's great to have you uh, with us, Andre. And before we get started, I just want to let everyone know that I have Andre's links to his incredible blog, as well as his YouTube channel in the description box down below. And when the stream ends, I will have those links as a pinned comment as well. Uh, me and Alexander, we read Andre's uh, blog posts every day. We watch his videos when he puts them out. It is a must read and a must watch. So I'll have those as a linked comment and they are right now in the description box down below. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, Rumble, Odyssey, YouTube, and theduran.locals.com. And a big shout out to everyone that is watching us on Telegram. And a big thank you to our amazing, great moderators. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Valley S. Thank you very much, Valley S, Valley S, and Valley S. <laughs> it, is, it is me and you moderating for today. And I'm sure we'll have more moderators uh, jumping in as the stream gets rolling. So let's, uh, let's talk about what is happening in the world. Alexander, Andre, I pass it off to you. Well, indeed. Can I, just, can I just say, um, um, Alex is absolutely right. If you want to understand what is going on, not just in uh, this conflict in Ukraine, which, of course, we're going to cover extensively, I say in Ukraine, but we've got to be very careful now because, of course, a large part of the conflict zone, um, the Russians don't feel is Ukraine at all. It's uh, voted to join the Russian Federation. Russia has passed a law. As far as the Russians are concerned, it is the Russian Federation. And, of course, as far as the people who live there, most of them, in my opinion, the overwhelming majority of them, they also think it is the Russian Federation. But anyway, for, for the moment, I, without qualification, I'm going to continue to talk about the conflict in Ukraine because most of us in the world have come to think of it in those terms. But anyway, it isn't just the conflict in Ukraine that you need to uh, follow Andre to understand. And I would also just reference again Andre's books, which he's written, which talk a great deal about the nature, the changing nature of war, the way in which war has developed, perhaps the most important aspect of it, something I can actually confirm from my own contacts with West European politicians, not American ones, is the profound ignorance of political leaders in the West about all questions of technology and war. And if you want to understand why we are in this crisis, why this disaster is unfolding, I think it comes from this. There has been some extraordinary comments made by General Zaluzhny, who is the nominal commander of the Ukrainian armed forces. 
And he says, for example, you know, how could you expect a different outcome in Ukraine in by forcing us to go in, onto an offensive without air support and without artillery support, without air cover, without artillery support? It is contrary to your own military dogmas. Except I can tell you for an absolute fact, for with a total certainty, that all of the decision made makers, Ursula von der Leyen, Tony Blinken, all of them, neither knew about that nor cared. Now, that's only a small example illustrating the point that Andre has been hammering away at for years. This entire conflict has been grounded on Western assumptions, assumptions amongst the political class about military power, the way work, armies work, illusions, many of which I personally shared, by the way, because as I said many times, I'm not a military expert, but I've never pretended to be one. They have never sought that advice. When they've been given that advice, which I presume they have done at times, they've never listened to it. They've made a whole set of decisions, political and military, which have brought us to this situation. And now we're starting to see the consequences. Now, the other thing I wanted to say about um, Andre is that one of the most refreshing things about Andre is that he is able to look at this war with an expert's eye, an, an expert's eye informed by Soviet and Russian military experience. And one of the most interesting things is he doesn't get bogged down, as all of the rest of us do, on the minutiae, you know, which village changes hands, who's advanced 50 metres, who's retreated 50 metres. He will tell you he's right. None of that is important. What you have to look at, what you've got to understand, if you're going to understand war, is not these tactical swings and backwards and forwards, which are part of any war, but the, uh, the overall direction of travel, which has been obvious from the outset. But I think the fact that it's obvious is becoming increasingly clear to many people. Now, Andre, can I just say something? It's not just the political leadership who are ignorant of war, increasingly ignorant of war in the West. It's the military as well. And we have a gentleman called Colonel Richard Kemp, who uh, was a military officer. He's also a columnist. He's written a very extraordinary article today in the British newspaper, the Daily Telegraph. He says that Russia is running out of time. That's what it says. Except when you actually read his article carefully, he says, you know, it's the offensive. The Ukraine's offensive is disappointing. They've only achieved minor gains. Their forces are being attritioned away. But it is the Russians who are running out of time. And he doesn't seem to have very much understanding or explanation of why that is the case. But as I say, it's not just the political people. I talked about military experts. Reading Colonel Kemp, as I will refer to him, I really, it really does make one wonder about the kind of quality of the military leadership in the West as well. Anyway, look, I've given you perhaps a too long introduction. Is there any particular point where you would like to pick up? I mean, it's 
the ignorance of much of the military, particularly, dare I say, the European military, that has astonished me. Um, obviously, that hasn't surprised you, Andre. Um, but uh, do you want to enlarge on that, perhaps? Well, um, I've been on the record for many years now, very many years, actually. Uh, the only thing they have, the Western militaries, NATO, is Gulf War 1.0, period. There's nothing more to it. Uh, Vietnam was a catastrophe, and it was uh, basically tearing down the American mil military mythology in Vietnam with the cat catastrophic consequences. Then we, of course, have what? Afghanistan cannot get any more blatant and manifest in terms of failure on primarily strategic and operational uh, level. This is precisely where the wars are won. They are not won on tactical levels. Yeah. And uh, so the only thing they had was Gulf War 1.0, beating defenseless, uh, you know, Iraqi third-rate army, which didn't do a thing in six months, which uh, preceded the, <laughs> the, so to speak, the desert storm when the uh, United States and coalition have been allowed to uh, preposition forces. And in 1992, the chief of the strategy department of the Russian Academy of General Staff, which is, by the way, older than the United States as a country. <laughs> yeah. So uh, here, uh, Mr. Klokotov, Lieutenant General Klokotov, wrote that basically what we saw is anomaly. It cannot be used as any reference or yardstick in terms of real warfare. But this is what they used as the yardstick. This is what they thought they needed to use as their, you know, beating the Turkish shirt against some uh, mm -hmm. totally inadequate and weak, practically defenseless enemy. And they basically derived everything from there. And obviously, then suddenly they started to face the issue of the real combined arms warfare, not understanding that uh, United States never really conducted real combined arms warfare because everything what they fought after Vietnam was primarily a high intensity police operations. You know, uh, what's uh, the, you know, what's the point of studying anything in West Point, granted that nowadays it's academically it's a catastrophe, basically, when you have, you know, you just call and close air support, they fly in, you know, F-16 or A-10, it bombs the crap out of whatever is on the front line, you move on. So there you go. And then suddenly you have the situation when you have to consider the fact that you have to face a very advanced forces. And I was worrying about it. You, they don't even understand, for example, in real war, what does it mean if NATO begins to fight Russians willing to commit suicide by the cop? Um, they don't even have a grasp of the fact that uh, their operational depth will be burning in the first 40 minutes of the uh, uh, assault on Russian troops. They have no clue, they have no grasp of it that, for example, the uh, headquarters on the, the divisional and uh, core, let alone army levels, will be found out, detected, identified, and then uh, annihilated. And they will have nothing, uh, they will not be able to do anything about it. We already saw what the NATO air defense is. 
it is really just butt of the jokes in Russian over days, you know. So, and uh, they still, I believe, uh, what do they do? They still assessing the damage to those five uh, patriots, you know. So it's it's a joke. It's it's becoming a meme now, and the joke uh, basically uh, 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 present time joke in Russia is if you want to blow your reputation, just send the equipment to Ukrainians. So. And they commit, of course, war crime, because this is the war crime when they are, and I'm talking about the uh, primarily Western media, I'm talking about all those advisors and uh, people in the political power place, when they basically throw each day hundreds upon hundreds, uh, well, they throw thousands to their death, basically. Mm -hmm. That's what Alex, uh, Alexander stated in terms of Zaluzhny, in whatever state he is, you know, mm -hmm. so and uh, mm. that it's not just the matter of air support or artillery, for example. Yeah. It is the matter that you, armies fight as a system. Mm. It's They fight as a system, they win as a system, they lose as a system. Uh, evidently, there is no understanding of this in Pentagon and London, those people who are actually planning these so-called operations. And they are desperate now, apart from the fact they have their jaws dropped on the floor because they uh, most of those people i can tell you immediately uh, most of those people they don't even understand the role of real air defense what it is you know so look at the air defenses of the nato armies it's it's just laughing stock pretty much you know so i i think your point about the fact that the west has never actually carried out successful combined arms warfare, <laughs> at least not perhaps since the Second World War. Whether they did during the Second World War or not, I don't know. Yeah, they did, you know, they I, did, yeah. They did. But, I mean, they haven't done anything like that for decades. And they are coming along and telling the Ukrainians, you must conduct, conduct combined arms warfare. And we are the people who are going to teach you how it is done. I think this is one of the most appalling things from a Western side that we have seen up to this point. I mean, I think that it's absolutely clear that the combined arms teaching that they provided the Ukrainians, to my, from the way it looks to me, is it weakened the Ukrainians? It, it actually made Ukrainian military performance worse on the battlefield than it had been previously. The Ukrainians had, I think, from their own experience and history and possibly what they still had left from the Soviet times, though I think that can be overstated actually. From what I understand, uh, since 2014, the Ukrainian army has had a clear out of most of many of its old Soviet trained officers. No. But but you know, whatever they had from that leftover from that time, it had a much clearer and better understanding of combined arms war than what uh, the West was telling them to do. What the West apparently was telling them to do was to advance with their tanks into minefields. Now, I'm not an expert, I, as I've said so many times, but even I can see the problems with doing something like that. And on the first couple of days, that's exactly what the Ukrainians did. And I was reading article after article in the West about how they were going to drive through, reach the fortifications, punch yeah. through. Uh, I mean, it's ended in a disaster. Even Forbes 
which, by the way, not many people read Forbes, but, you know, some people do, and the important people, it's the financial people who tend to read Forbes. Even Forbes is now admitting that it was an absolute disaster, uh, even worse than we'd already originally been led to believe. Well, uh, I am on the record. I'm not sure, though, it applies anymore because the most of the command uh, core of the armed forces of Ukraine have been annihilated. But even half a year ago, the uh, average Ukrainian company commander could have gone to Sandhurst or West Point and would teach those colonels and uh, major generals uh, a lot about the armor warfare. And there is another thing what we have to understand. Well, certainly uh, Pentagon, due to its ISR complex and due to involvement of the, in England too, due to involvement of MI6 and CIA directly into the issue of the decision-making on the armed, uh, uh, armed forces of Ukraine part, they obviously have still very limited picture because uh, if you look attentively in the media and even very many of those people, so-called professionals who are supposed to be in the know, they still drink this Kool-Aid from the Ukrainian side. Even granted that they have a decent, you know, they can get some telemetry from the, you know, uh, um, uh, from the battlefield, they fly all those global hawks and other things, you know, just to, you know, get whatever the sign, uh, signal intelligence. And But still, they do not have even 10% of the clear picture because what really matters here are war correlates. Russians do have those war correlates because if you ca- uh, come up with something which is politically correct and you want to suck up to the uh, some kind of the higher ups in the combat conditions, or oh, you will be cooked a toast in a minute. Uh, so in this particular case, Russian uh, information flow through and through from tactical through strategic level is very free flow and very good flow. And when you look at the performances, and as I already stated, it brings us back. I mean, uh, what can possibly any colonel of the U.S. Army can teach uh, the guy on the front line of the armed forces of Ukraine? And again, I do not, I'm not disclosing any secret. And I understand I made this caveat pretty much uh, uh, clear to everybody for a number of months now that I certainly do have some corporate, uh, you know, uh, unity with people who are, you know, in armed forces all over the place, be them, you know, British, American or what have you, Chilean for, they are um, uh, supposed to be the military professionals. And but now I have to admit that I, I don't see many professionalism on the American military part. You know, I'm not talking about these clowns like Petraeus or what have Keen and whatever those uh, indeed clowns show from this Neocon uh, think tank, Institute for Misunderstanding the War, or whatever, Institute for Study the War. I mean, they don't study anything there. They have no access to reliable information except for what they get from CIA or what their connections in Washington. But most of it is the uh, Ukrainian propaganda. And, of course, many of them believe themselves that they are really great. But, uh, again, Petraeus wouldn't be allowed to command battalion in the Russian army. You know, and uh, the point is that in Russia right now, it's if you look attentively at the media and many professionals say many, not all, but many, they say they're cowards. They're hiding behind their proxy because they know if once they go, it's just like bring it on, you know, and uh because Russians can calculate, Russians can operationally plan, 
And they did it for many, many decades. And then you suddenly have the situation as my uh, friend, um, a really good Russian uh, 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 political observer and economist, uh, Alexander Rocher says, they don't have operational planning. They have business plan. That's the only thing they have. They never knew what it is, their real 24-7 operation when you have the attrition, when you have the different configuration of the forces due to the attrition, due to the actions of the enemy. What kind of planning was God for one? Oh, yeah, let's point the target, let's blow it. Okay, next, next, next. And so no real uh, defense, no real resistance, nothing. And then suddenly you have the situation if you are some, uh, let's say, a brigadier general or chief of staff of the corps mm -hmm. or uh, commander of the division, you are not safe on the modern battlefield. Even no matter how you dig yourself into the ground, if it will not be some Onyx or 3M14 caliber uh, getting you, it will be a Kinjal which will get you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the whole point. Those people still cannot grasp this uh, reality of the modern field of which I've worn for many years. Mm -hmm. You don't understand what you're getting yourself into. And you, you know, Andre, what you've just been saying, almost word for word, is what a, uh, a mercenary, we will call them a mercenary, an American volunteer who's just been fighting. And this is a very recent one because others have said the same thing before, but this is a, a new one. He's actually read exactly that point. He said, you know, if you want to come and fight in a war, don't come to this one. <laughs> this is completely different from every other war I've fought in. It's, you know, you have missiles coming at you from every direction. The other side has an air force. It's got helicopters. It's got guns. You are going to be fighting something on an intensity and a level which no Western soldier has ever experienced up to now. And you could see this. I mean, you, you could see this every day. And I, I don't think that this is widely understood, by the way, because, again, if you follow this is, by the way, another great thing, um, because I do follow the English language parts of the Russian media and the quality, the difference in Russian war reporting of this war from typical war reporting in the West is uh, it is not just stark. It is totally different. Russians report about the war, and I, you know, it isn't just information flow. In other words, that comes from the commanders and the military itself, all the way up to the general staff and downwards. It's to the general population as well. They're getting information about war in a way that is radically different from the the kind of reporting about war that we tend to get in the West. And of course, my impression is that most of the Russian military correspondents are people with a very, very real, very hard-earned experience of war. And they know that they're talking to a public which is probably experienced or at least educated in war in ways that the Western public is not and therefore wouldn't be deceived in the same way as the Western public very easily is about how war is fought. Um my friend, very good friend, and he is very famous um, military reporter in Russia. Mm -hmm. He reports for the Channel One uh, or uh, Russian uh, 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 public television, and he's constantly on there. You can find him, Marat Khairulin. 
Uh, he, he is not professional military, but let me no. tell you, he can go and uh, teach uh, in the U.S. War College, U.S. Army War College, anything about combined arms warfare. And he is embedded with Slav uh, uh, Slavyanka Brigade. And he talks to people, obviously, on not only tactical, but operational level too constantly. And his uh, reports from military point of view are extremely literate. He explains the difference between, for example, tactical issue and operational issue, of course. That is why, for example, we've been talking for, I don't know, a long time, many months about Wagner. And people even on my channel says, oh, you never praise them. You know what you say? Well, yeah, <laughs> we knew what they were up to and what they were doing because, well, it's the military professional level how you describe this. This is not to say that uh, Russia doesn't have its blemishes. Obviously, majority of the bloggers, so-called, <laughs> it's called, uh, uh, they are a disaster, as, as are pretty much most media in the West in this mm -hmm. respect. But then again, don't forget, they have a vested interest. They need uh, subscribers and they need monetization. So they sell all kinds of the fairy tales, including sometimes uh, issues which go contrary to the general policies and plans of Russian uh, military political top. So and but other than that, for the most part, yes, you will have a very different level of uh, yeah. reporting. And don't forget, there is another thing. Most Russian men, most, not all, even today, they go through the military service. They go through the military service, which is ob uh, obligatory. They call it the conscripts. Well, some are conscripts, others are professionals. And so even the conscripts, after the year, now it will be two years back to Soviet norms, so to speak, of their uh, armed service, uh, so which is mandatory, uh, they know at least basic weapon systems. They know how the squads and platoons <laughs> operate generally, let alone that. But for the most part, we're looking at the primarily ground element. There are obviously uh, issues such as Navy or Air Force is, you know, Air Defense, they are highly professional and there are very little conscripts there, if any. So most of those people there are contract people, they are professionals. So, and yes, that the, the, obviously the level of reporting is dramatically different. The same as level of the grasp on the even basic public level is different, of course. Absolutely. Can I just say, I mean, when I, when I said reporters, I want to make it very clear, I'm talking about Russian war reporters. Bloggers are a completely different... Uh, group of people i mean there are one or two who are pretty good but some of them are awful yeah most and, of and, them and, and you've got to be very very careful uh, uh yeah. running them and in fact some of them by the way i noticed that the western media sometimes quotes them when it's convenient yeah yeah they them. use the yeah it's propaganda the only yeah. thing the only yeah. thing uh western media can do is pr and uh, it's, it's the fact is even those uh military professionals so to speak what they leak quote unquote to US of uh, 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 Western media, it is so unprofessional, it's so reasonable. They cannot even construct their professional in enough lie to sell it. It's just downright hack job. You and people, many people, especially who went through their military, uh, you know, training, they look at it like and they laugh at it. You know, it's just ridiculous. And as I already stated, there are. Uh, 
I have to admit, there is a lot of loss of respect to Western uh, uh, militaries in Russia right now. It used, it used to be that, hey, they may not be as good as they say, you know, but they are still forced to be reckoned with. Now they say, yeah, they're still forced to be reckoned with, but my God, these are people just like a circus, really. And in many respects, they are correct. And again, those people are, do not understand what modern warfare is. Andrea, I'm going to ask you to explain uh, 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 two concepts that you've just uh, cited, which um, I had never heard of until this war began, and which, by the way, many Western military people haven't. I mean, in West, we talked about tactics and strategy, but you talked about tactics and you also talked about something called operations. And that does seem to be a, a distinctive Russian con concept. Can you perhaps provide some explanation of this for our viewers? I mean, I've been reading a lot about this recently, and I find it extremely interesting. And um, it goes directly to that point about, you know, not being too worried about, you know, whether 50 metres here or there, <laughs> you're, you're advancing here or there. Can you explain this, this difference? Well, it's actually a German-Russian thing. Yeah. But don't forget, in uh, 1812, we had Karl von Clausewitz, who was attached to, for example, yeah. Russians, even at the Battle of Borodino. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of Prussian people, so to speak, hanging around Russian army, which, it, which fought and defeated Napoleon. For example, Clausewitz was frustrated that he wasn't allowed anywhere near the uh, tactical units, you know, of Russian army. So, but uh, eventually Germans, based on Russian campaign, and took many Russians to conclude that, well, you know what, strategy is fine, tactics is fine. What is in the middle? How you uh, basically shuffle, how you correct, uh, command and control all those regiments, let alone divisions. And then suddenly you begin to have this uh, unifying concept, a unifying link between tactics, which is how your unit fights, you know. It's how your battalion fights, how your regiment fights. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you go to, you cannot go to the strategy because you can lose a, a battalion and you're still going to win strategically. You're going to win the campaign. You're going to win the war. And war, obviously, strategic level of war is not just defeating enemy per se. Of course, it is. But it is achieving political goals of war. Tactics don't achieve political goals of war. It's not nowhere near. But they surmised at that time, Germans and Russians, that, hey, actually, the victory is won not on a tactical level. It is won on the uh, strategic level and something which is close to it, which ties together those operations of battalions, regiments, and how they run and how they operate. And then eventually, so from 19th century, this concept uh, started to develop and Russian general staff, of course, started to develop it in the, in the profound depth. And by the World War II, there, in terms of operations, there were like two parts. There is an operations per se, which is calculable, accessible in terms of the probabilities of the required force, which is needed, for example, in some sector or some strip of land, or uh, depending on the, how Lanchester, of course, uh, Mr. Lanchester and Osipov came up in 1915 with what is called theory of operations. And suddenly, in this theory of operational research, you can predict some things, especially when you deal with the attrition models, you know, and things of this nation, and suddenly you'll say, oh, 
you know what, we have combat effectiveness of this. Remember Napoleon stating that sometimes division fights as a battalion, sometimes battalion fights as a division, you know, because of the spirit of the esprit de corps, of combat training and things like that. And suddenly all this started to go in mathematically. And then you recognize that, hmm, if you have, let's say, a regiment of Mojahideen in Afghanistan, or something which is similar in number, let's say 1,000, uh, you know, Mojahideens, well, what will the, let's say, company of the highly trained and well-armed and supported by air group of paratroopers do, company of paratroopers do? Okay, in terms of combat effectiveness, they could be equal to this regiment. And this is theory of operations. This is how it's calculated. These are how operations are uh, planned. But then operational art is called art for a reason. While operations is a very hard science, operational art is my enemy knows what I'm going to be doing. They have the same mathematical apparatus. They have the same approach to pretty much calculating things. How will I actually outthink my enemy? And that when it becomes operational art. That is why it's called art. Because it stops being just merely hardcore science. It is hardcore science in the framework of the uh, basically art. How I outthink, outmaneuver my uh, enemy. And that starts obviously in the larger scheme of things on the levels of divisions. You know. Uh, army corps, armies, and whole armed forces. And then suddenly you are de dealing not only with the tactical issue, where whatever your platoons and companies and battalions do and operate on the ground is the fact how your brigade, or let alone division, by the way, which in the Russian uh, uh, armed forces division is operational tactical force already. Brigade, for example, is purely tactical, but uh, division is already operational tactical. And then the higher you go, army is already uh, strategic operational, you know, so because this is the set of the goals they can solve. And operational art and operation fit right in the middle between tactics and strategy. And this is what it becomes the flow of those three uh, important components. They operate vertically. They operate simultaneously with each other. They interact, you know, top, bottom, bottom up. And uh, it's extremely important to understand how it is done. Mm. But uh, what kind of operational art you need to from, from people, uh, if you look at answer at Pentagon, those people who uh, plan those operations for Ukraine, they use cliches. They don't know anything mm. like that. And apart from the fact that they now are just basically have no way back, the only thing that is left for them is to run those poor... Uh, conscripts, many of those people, uh, you know, uh, mm. uh, of the armed forces of, of Ukraine to, to a certain death. And let me make another point. Why, why I'm beginning to talk about war crimes. Pentagon, uh, uh, Ministry of Defense of uh, uh, United Kingdom, MI6, CIA are well aware of the practice of execution and torture of those people in armed forces of Ukraine who do not do, do not want to go and kill themselves. And if they have the literally cage detachments, they shoot them in the back if they try to surrender to Russian side. This is war crime. 
And guess what? It's coming up in the real war crime tribunal and crimes against humanity, which will be is being set up now with the participation of uh, the Russian uh, investigative committee and Russian Duma in Moscow and in Donetsk. My God, when this thing starts, we will hear so many names of not Russian or Ukrainian origin, which will be stated there for people who commit this uh, uh, crime. And um, yeah. So you can see every day the number of the KIAs from the armed forces of Ukraine, and they catch people, sometimes 65, 70-year-old people, on the streets and drag them into the army. Indeed. We're going to come to all that, the topic of war crimes, uh, a little later, because I want to focus a lot on this issue of, of command and the way in which... Sure army is commanded because uh, and by the way just a few quick things uh, because as a result of this war i finally read Clausewitz. never been particularly interested in him uh, he immediately one of the things that comes across very immediately when you read Clausewitz is that he fully acknowledges he's dead to the russian experience to the fact that he was there in 1812 and 1813 and 14 and saw how the russians conducted the war there's a lot he didn't understand but he understood enough and he tried to systematize it. And that is the product of his famous study on war. Something I had not been aware of. But you have to you have to go back to Clausewitz's background to see that. The second, which is a, something I remember myself, which is about what happens when you don't have this concept of operations, holding the whole thing together, giving the campaign purpose. Many years ago, about 15 years ago, I watched a programme on British television about the behaviour of the British Army in Afghanistan. I was following a company, a company of about 100 men, I suspect, who go from one Afghan village to another in Helmand. And it was Channel 4 dispatches. And I remember leaving this programme, coming away from this programme, in a state of absolute despair, because I could not for the life of me understand what those people were doing. <laughs> they came from one village to another, they were meeting people, they were shooting sometimes, but there seemed to be no purpose to this activity. And it's this absence of this concept of operations, which I think explains that. It was all tactics. It was pure, simple tactics with no, as I said, logic behind it. Now, the, there is another question I do want to ask, Andres. I want to ask you about the Russian general staff, because one of the things that's become absolutely clear to me is that this very intellectual body of people is, again, something very distinctive, very different from the kind of things that we have in the West, the, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States. Well, I don't even know what the equivalent is in Britain, but I don't think we have any equivalent in the West anymore. The Germans used to, but they don't any longer. Can you explain to us what the general staff does? Because it's not, I think, very well understood. When people in the West think about staff work, they think it about, they think they see it as something that's entirely about organization, principally. But perhaps you can explain a bit more about that. 
uh, general staff of Russian, Russian armed forces, is the main organ of the combat control, command and control of the armed forces of Russia. And most what they do, they do planning. They plan 24 7, 365, depending on the change of the overall strategic and you know, operational situation. And the core of the Russian general staff is GO, it's G O G O U or G O main planning directorate. It's главное оперативное управление. This is the heart of it. This is the thing which plans the whole military thing, whatever it is, be that some kind of the police action, like it was in Kazakhstan, for example, which was the peacekeeping and police action of the um, uh, 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 union of the former Soviet republics with the combined forces, or be it now, which is many people, I want to stress again, and this is what people have to understand, Russia still doesn't fight the war. Russia fights special military operation. You do not want Russia to begin to fight the war, believe me, because it's going to be this level of violence turned to 11, okay? Because totally different paradigm, totally different planning will go, and guess what? This will be general staff, which will be doing this planning and com basically conducting that, what amounts to combat, uh, you know, uh, control of the armed forces of Russia. And, uh, for example, war has very different requirements. Uh, and by the way, it is also the document which is written for by, and you guessed it, general staff. Some of the departments or directorates which do deal with all kinds of things, ranging from the psyops to intelligence, like GU, uh, which used to be GRU, main uh, you know, intelligence directorate, to planning, to, uh, to ground forces, to Navy, to what have you. And it all subordinated, completely subordinated to the military doctrine, which is developed by, and you have guessed it, <laughs> general staff, and adopted by the Russian political top, and signed into the law and into the doctrine by the president of Russian Federation, who is also a supreme commander. And guess what? This is this vertical, which works constantly between each other, communicates completely with each other, including through the Minister of Defense, who is obviously, uh, whose first deputy is, of course, chief of the general staff of Russian Federation. In this particular case, we know that the defense minister is general of the army, Shaigu, and his first deputy and chief of the general staff is general of the army, Mr. Gerasimov. This is how it's done. The whole thing is subordinated into this vertical structure whose only task, quoting Clausewitz, is to compel the enemy to do our will, the main object of war. They plan it in complete accordance to the national interest as expressed by, by the political top of Russian Federation for Russia. And that's the fundamental difference. That is why, uh, and this system, as you might understand, requires an incredibly high intellectual, academic, military academic level. And uh, obviously you need to, 
let me put it this way the academy of general staff in russia it's it's a legendary uh, institution you may not know but before 2014 there were a number of nato officers who were visiting it and studying it obviously under their uh, apart from classified things but they were uh, introduced to the courses for in military history and staff work and planning as was done by russians for centuries essentially then guess what? There were many uh, American officers, British officers. There were Japanese officers. There were all kinds of officers from, you know, and this is what general staff does. And um, if I hopefully uh, explain that to in the sim most simplest form, so to speak. So, and, uh, and yeah, there is another thing, of course, which is, of course, the, uh, the center of the com combat control of the armed forces of Russia. You already saw it probably on the uh, on YouTube or on TV. It's a state-of-the-art, almost Star Wars-type facility, which is one huge, gigantic screen and computers all over there with the officers' operators sitting in their terminals. And, of course, there is a classified, non-public part of it, I would say, uh, I, you know what, uh, probably we're talking about the almost holographic holographic uh, battlefield representation there. Something like the Star Wars, remember, Death Star? Mm -hmm. So you probably have this 3D thing unfolding depending mm -hmm. on that. Because Russia operates fully in the net, network-centric paradigm. And this is another thing which NATO obviously didn't expect. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, absolutely. They not only understand that, but uh, not, not only do, but I mean, they, they are probably more easily structured around that than we are. Because, uh, yeah. again, there is something else which I do want you to touch on, Andre, because, of course, one of the cliches, it's an absolute cliche in the West, you come across it all the time, is that Russian um, officers are deprived, particularly at tactical level are deprived of initiative. <laughs> they don't actually have initiative and that they have to follow centralised control because this is how the West it looks at these structures that you've described and it, 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 it explains them in that way, that this is top-down, centrally controlled and it, the result is that the officer, the, you know, the, the, the lieutenant colonel on the battlefield has no real um, initiative, lacks initiative, in what he's able to do. Well, can you, can you touch on that? Because from what I've understood, come to understand, from a Russian perspective, this structure that you've described at the tactical level, it actually, if anything, encourages initiative, or at least that is how Russians understand it. Um, let me put it this way. All Western militaries after the World War II has been have been shaped by Wehrmacht. They were taught and instructed by the defeated Wehrmacht. So, as a result, they bought, you know, and swallowed uh, hook, line, and sinker all this uh, BS from German generals who, as we know, they lost the freaking war. So, but West decided under the pretext that, oh, Russians do not provide any information, you know, and all of it is propaganda. Well, sure, but they started learning, learning from people like, <laughs> oh, good God, Eric von Manstein. For some reason, they have this exaggerated, completely grossly out of proportion admiration for Rommel, who militarily is not that significant. 
he was never even in the same uh, league as Walter Model, for example, or let alone Guderian Holmanstein. But hey, they wanted it. And guess what? I'm quoting here, not myself. It's not my opinion. Basically, it's the opinion of the cadre American officers and the uh, um, military historians with the international repute. Colonel David Glantz and Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan House. They talk about it. The whole thing was shaped by this BS, German BS, about our tactic, whatever the German name for it, like, oh, yeah, let's do this initiative for the in the overall concept of the Blitzkrieg. And, you know, Russians are like robots. They go there and, you know, so... Uh, and they go where they said to go. They have no initiative, as if the war is fought that you go where you want to go. Uh, you probably uh, Wagner experience is a good demonstration of that. That you don't do those things. You end up uh, killing seventy percent of your personnel. But point is, and they believed that. They literally believed that. If not for David Glantz, Colonel, at that time, the. He organized Department of the Slavic Military Studies in the General Staff and Command College in the uh, Leavenworth, Kansas, of the U.S. Army. If not for him, they would still be learning those campaigns that uh, based basically, oh, yeah, we lost the war. We got our ass kicked at Stalingrad. We got our ass kicked at the at Kursk. We got the group army center destroyed completely during, uh, uh, you know, Bagration offensive. And then, yeah, we lost, uh, we lost uh, Berlin. But no, we're still good. We're still better than those damn Russians. And that's where this idiotic myth comes that Russians basically piled bodies, you know, to get to Berlin, while in reality the military ratio was 1 to 1.3 in favor of uh, Germans, you know. So it's hardly, uh, you know, body, uh, uh, piles of bodies if you look at the intensity of the war. But they bought it and they believed it. And now they have this uh, propaganda being and mythology of their military power being basically destroyed as we speak every day, every single day that happens. And they don't know what to do because obviously very few people in the U.S. Army, those who went through the Department of the uh, Slavic Military Studies, which then was by David Glantz, and they still issued this magazine of the Slavic uh, military studies. It's not as good anymore as it used to be, but they still try. Some, some of them learned about deep operations of the Red Army during World War II, but primarily they are, it is the hubris, it is the arrogance, which have been multiplied many times after this easy beating the crap pretty much from the defenseless enemy. And they believe that they have the yardstick. They don't. They never did to start with. You know, and Afghanistan showed it beautifully. In Iraq, it's it's really pathetic, honestly. And then suddenly they are uh, basically having this, uh, uh, how to say it, lesson on the combined arms warfare against the best proxy United States ever had. <laughs> Fact is, at the start of the 24th of February, 2022, Ukrainian armed forces were the strongest armed forces in the rest of the Europe much stronger than the Bundeswehr, yeah. much stronger than France, the French armed forces, let alone uh, British armed forces. They were the strongest army in the Europe, stronger than Turks even, which is the second largest force. And yet look at them now. Yeah. It's a third iteration which has been annihilated. And 
people say that, yeah, the kill ratio is horrifying. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's one to 10, sometimes like in some tactical or operational access, it can reach up one to 17. And they don't teach that in US military academies. Nor is this acknowledged generally in the West that we're starting to see some acknowledgement of it. I mean, I mentioned Colonel Kemp and his bizarre article in the Daily Telegraph. He actually admitted for the first time that Ukraine is now suffering very heavy losses in uh, men and equipment as it tries and fails to prosecute this offensive. Andre, I, I, I'm going to turn to the topic of Wagner because you, know, uh, you okay. have been you've been commenting a lot about Wagner. We ourselves have come in for a lot of criticism from some quarters about our own criticisms of Wagner and our own views about the attempts that was made on the 23rd to 25th of June. Um, how do you see this whole thing? I mean, in our opinion, this was a crazy operation. It basically, what it showed was the solidity of the Russian military and political system. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that this group of, this, this, this small group of people, because it was not, it wasn't even the whole of the Wagner group became involved. Not only did they not shake the political military system, but they, it absorbed them very well. But what is the what has been the actual role of Wagner in this war? What role has it actually played? What extremely is, what is it negative. Extremely right. negative, despite the fact that many of people in Wagner who fought there were obviously people with the heroic, professional, and things of this nature. Mm. But it was again we have to roll back to mm. half a year ago, even more. And why, for example, I and my friends, oh gosh, it's all over Russian internet, me and Marat Hairulin and Vladimir Truhan of the Central Apparatus of Ministry of Defense. Uh, so all kinds of you know military and real military reporting professionals were talking about it for many months now. <clears throat> Everything starts from Bakhmut. But even we have to roll back even further back, 2018. Larry Johnson, my friend, wrote an excellent piece about this. Uh, you probably remember the uh, moment when in 2018 there was a uh, US, uh, uh, US Air Force bombed the bejesus from some forces over the red line, which was established between Russian uh, and uh, American forces in Syria. Mm-hmm. What many people forget, that part of this group, which was following the, some Syrian warlord into the Kurdish territory, was about oil and making money. And there was the Wagner there, which went there completely on the decisions made by the so-called, they have this, used to have this body, command, uh, Council of Commanders. And it was Mr. Prigozhin who wanted more money. And they attached themselves to the Syrian warlord, crossed the river. Americans call Russians on the deconfliction line, says, hey, guys, are there any your guys there? And Russian military command says, no. Say, so, okay, so we'll deal with this. Russians say, hey, go, go right ahead. Americans, you know, uh, take their aircraft into the air, bomb the crap out of these people. And then it turns out that it was the, a lot of it were Wagner. They lost, some people say 20, others say 80. We don't know now. But they're in, in tens, okay, of the Wagner group. 
And uh, basically, the rumor has it that Prigozhin has been so upset. He started, you know, just, just basically signaling to Shaigu, defense minister, the guy who actually signs the contracts, you know, to those Wagner groups, you know, and pays their salaries. And the response was, guys, don't play Napoleon, you know. You don't know what you're dealing with here. But Mr. Prigozhin, being the former prisoner and robber, and men of very low uh, moral qualities. Mm -hmm. And by the way, for everybody to know, which uh, I am on the record for many months, he doesn't know Putin. He served mm -hmm. him once, was, had two photos with him, and he was selling those photos as if he has connection to Putin. Putin didn't even know who Prigozhin was. <laughs> and that's the thing. This is all PR, including a huge number of the bloggers and Concord group, PR machine, which was promoting Wagner. But go back to Bakhmut. Wagner being a contractor of the Ministry of Defense and being nothing more than the Storm Group. There were 12 battalions, and this one primarily people with the light and medium-sized weapons, whose task was to take some, you know, urban centers and they were pretty good, more or less, at some point of time. But but then, of course, while this conflict develops, and Mr. Prigozhin obviously has sour grapes for many years from Mr. Shaigu and others who tell them, guys, don't go there. You don't understand what you're doing, dealing with. Go and do your thing, you know, being what is the private military company. They signed the contract for the special military operation, which at that time got them basically the sector. Here's the near Bakhmut, hold the line, mm -hmm. hold the line. And while we were dealing with Bakhmut itself, you know, just keeping it open as a trap and steady meat grinder for Ukrainian forces. But no, Mr. Prigozhin decided that, let me show you those losers from Russian army, mm -hmm. you know, this the same Russian army which provided air support, intelligence, artillery, tanks, mm -hmm. you know, to this Wagner group. He said, let's go and take Bakhmut on our own. And guess what? In full violation with the contract and in full violation with the orders, they go, drag themselves in the Bakhmut, meet immediately stiff resistance. And this is when the start of their uh, um, uh, recruiting of their prisoner people started. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Mr. Uh, they, instead of glory to Bakhmut, they immediately made sure, even if they uh, did, well, they did it on purpose, but because of that, because of their involvement into the Bakhmut, number of the, at that time, which was half a year ago, number of crucial units and supplies and resources have been withdrawn by Russian defense ministry and general staff. And Prigozhin hates Gerasimov to support those guys now who got into the, you know, really bad situation and suddenly you need to cover their flanks mm. how do you do this well of course you move you start moving what russian paratroop units mm. russian rifle units they stick mm. around their flanks not to allow to them to be uh surrounded and guess what this immediately slows down operations on other operational axes for example kupiansk axis what do you think was uh, gerasimov and shaygu happy no in fact, is there was a very serious situation with the discussion of the of Wagner already then within Russian uh, armed forces. Well, now the numbers are available. 
they lost during their uh, up out of the prison population, which was given three weeks training for by Prigozhin and his uh, council of commanders, 70% have been casualties. This is a slaughter, basically. And of course, he didn't capture Bakhmut until Russian army got involved. But while this was happening, obviously, Shaigu and Gerasimov had enough with him. And he was told there will be no more contracts for you. You're done. And yeah. that's what precipitated this desperate act of man who completely lost, I mean, touch with the reality. He's, uh, he is absolutely not military man. He has no. zero, uh, basically, military background. His council of commanders, while many of them were just indeed uh, prof military professionals, many of them, despite the fact that they had a combat history, for example, even in Chechnya or in Syria, this, of course, has nothing to do with the scale and scope of special military operation. And some people there, due to greed, a sheer ambition and ego, they went bananas. And guess what? You already saw the result of this. And uh, mm -hmm. the only reason Putin went this way is because uh, he didn't want to kill that many people, many of whom have been duped pretty much out of Wagner. And by the time they started, uh, the second day of this, already clear, there were Ahmad forces surrounding uh, uh, Raskov. And this, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's so pathetic. But what they achieved, that uh, Putin ratings went from 80% to 90%. So that was the result. The, 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 the last point is absolutely true. And, and it's not been at all reported. Uh, Putin's... Putin's support levels have actually increased in Russia as a result of this affair. For my part, I'm going to say this. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm not knowing a lot about Wagner. I was impressed by what they seem to be achieving in Bakhmut. Except I did begin to become sceptical when Prigozhin said that he was doing this all by himself. Oh, uh, yeah. There were no Russian military units Complete anywhere bubble. involved. And that was simply not, I mean, that was just That, that was is just why. Absurd. That, that was just why. absolutely absurd. And that did make me start to wonder about what the whole affair was. Crucial I, point, which yeah. started his rolling into the madness. Yeah. Not only he was told that contracts will not be ex uh, uh, extended, he was told that he has no right anymore and this uh, was stopped, you know, uh, yeah. full stop of him recruiting the prison absolutely. population because they started reporting horrendous losses. Yes. They were literally throwing those guys and they were just slaughtered there. Absolutely. I, and I, I saw that as well, by the way. And the fact that it was all stopped. By the way, just to, just to quickly say, Scott Ritter has written a very, very interesting piece about uh, Prigozhin's financial affairs mm -hmm. and the Wagner organization's history of contracts. And it's, now I'm, I'm sorry to say this, <clears throat> It's become absolutely clear that what Andrea has been saying about this all along is correct, that for Prigrosian, it was essentially a financial money-making enterprise. Yeah. And he couldn't, couldn't face the fact that his contracts were being cancelled. That was what provoked this whole, uh, this whole affair. The total sum of the contracts Wagner received throughout this year yeah. amounts to more than uh, $11 billion dollars. Yeah. 
Prigozhin was living very comfortably, as mm. were some of his uh, commanders. Yes. Let's face it. Yes. And it it became their uh, yeah. money making operation. Yes. Anyway, let's 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 move on. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Because we have this offensive underway at the moment. Um, it's not achieving anything. I mean, even as I say, people in the West are starting to see that. Um, even people in the West who've been fed this endless stories about Russian incompetence, Russian demoralization, <laughs> Russia's running out of missiles. CSIS has now admitted it's never oh, gosh, run out it's, of missiles. Uh, uh, reports heavy. now starting to trickle through. Russia's out producing the Western tanks in yeah. shells and all of those things. Uh, by the way, something which somebody who perhaps has a better understanding of industrial economics and industries of scale. I was one of the Westerners who was less surprised by that than others. I mean, as I said, I've been to Russian factories and I've seen, I've said this many times, I've seen how they're organized. I was not surprised that Russia was able to increase production and output to the extent that it did. And what we've had this year is going to be dwarfed, <laughs> by the way, by what's coming. Uh, um, there's been a whole series of industrial decisions that have been taken over the last few months, which are now starting to work their way through. And uh, anyway, we, we, this is for another time, perhaps. But where are we going? I mean, what is the direction of this conflict? Are the Russians going to go on the offensive? This is the question we always get asked. I'm not sure how, what you even think of the question, perhaps, yeah, Andre. Yes, um... uh, what, 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 I mean, and of course, you know, you, we don't know what the general staff, what Putin is thinking, oh, yeah. but where, what, what kind thing. of, which is an essential point to understand, but in purely military terms, where are we going? Um, I think uh, that uh, Russian position now is extremely strong, mm -hmm. extremely strong, actually. And there was never doubt that uh, there will be any different outcome. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that Russia sitting uh, in their strategic defense position does not preclude offensive actions. No. For example, many people do not notice this again, but Russia is back around Kup Kupansk. Yeah. So, I mean, nobody reports it, but hey, it's just uh, actually a large arrow there, you know, and the Russians are already there. But Russia is feeling comfortable here because, do not forget, it's what I stated, a general staff of being military organization has a huge political wing to it, so to speak, which actually interacts with the political top and uh, what people say, did Russia uh, foresee their uh, volatility in Europe as it happen is happening now? Yes, it did. In other matter, it could have been different in terms of details, but there was no doubt that SMO puts a drain, basically, on the not only military-industrial complexes of NATO, mm -hmm. but it also puts a drain, political drain. It actually undermines the regimes which actually run the European Union and the United States, essentially. And for this, uh, for this matter, uh, you know, for, this is a great point for Russians to sit now in strategic defense, annihilate the remnants of whatever is left from the armed forces of Ukraine. And we all know it's the third iteration there. And each day, if you look even uh, just from the 
first phase. It's yeah. if you don't achieve anything the first 10, 15 days during offensive, you're done. Your offensive is cooked. But uh, they didn't even break through their what is called supply uh, front line. They didn't even reach the first line of defense, and they already have been destroyed. And when you look at it uh, from June, from starting from the June 4th, I believe they lost armed forces of Ukraine another 22,000 KIAs. So multiplied by two, roughly it's the same number of uh, wounded. And so the third iteration, uh, yeah, they called about second, talk about second phase, let it come. Second phase, the result will be even more dramatic. And after that, we'll see, because there is a lot of political change going on right now in the world, and especially Western world. And do not forget, it all happens in full parallel with the activity on BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, OPEC. This is all tied together. It is the fundamental strategy of the state. And this is in a full closet way that, you know, what mm. our the, the object of any war is to compel the enemy to do our will. Russia is doing just that with military part of it being obviously very huge, but still just the part of it. And do mm. not forget, even Ukraine is not the end of it. We have other front line in Syria still. We have other events uh, happening all over the world. I don't let me go into the naval part of it. It's a whole other story altogether. Yeah. Especially Russian shipbuilding program. And then we have mm. China. So when you look at this, yeah. you begin to understand that, oh, mm. why take out the knife from the wound when you can, can continue to keep the knife in the mm. wound and rotate it periodically there, you know? And this yeah. is what happens. And uh, because uh, 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 Russian... Um, uh, losses have been relatively light. You know, there are more people dying, you know, in Russia from alcoholism and, uh, you know, traffic problems a year than what Russia lost, you know, so far. And when you look at this, this is, yeah, it's a good thing to continue. But at some point of time, definitely there is, don't forget, we need to know if Poland will be stupid enough to commit suicide. And there is another... 500,000 Russian troops which haven't been introduced yet. They are well trained now, extremely well supplied, and they're standing behind the lines waiting. Waiting for what? Well, I can tell you. The contingency, the main contingency is if NATO decides to go bananas. If mm. it decides to go bananas, then good, good mm. God. Mm. Well, 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 let's let's absolutely keep our fingers crossed and hope that our, even our leaders in the West aren't that reckless as to try that. My own feeling, by the way, about this is that the pendulum is now swinging against this. I, I, I think that, um, I, I'm going to say it, I think that at many levels, perhaps not at the very senior level, perhaps not at the sort of Ursula von der Leyen level, oh, or even the Biden level, uh, but in, in the sort of intermediate level of leaders, leadership, where the decisions, most of the really real decisions are actually made there. They're not made at the very top. I think people are profoundly shocked. I think that they are shocked by the fact that the offensive has been so unsuccessful. They're shocked at the level of losses that Ukraine is taking. They may not have the full picture about them, but they're starting to get a sense of that. Yeah. But I think the thing that's really, really spooked them 
and something that they didn't expect or understand. There are two things or anticipate. One was that Russia would outproduce them in military equipment. I mean, that that is something that was completely beyond their uh, reckoning or understanding. And the second was that the economic war, which they thought would end Russia, is now starting to look like it might end them in the sense that, I mean, there's now talk about a gold-backed BRICS currency being on the horizon and being the main topic of discussions in, uh, in, in South Africa when the BRICS countries meet. And lots of other things going on. Li Shangfu, the Chinese defense minister, as I'm sure you know, Andre has just met with the commander of the Russian, exactly, the Russian Navy. So all of this, and that reminds me, I think it was, uh, some Russians said it, sometimes it said it was Lenin, just what you said, all is connected. Everything connects with everything else. And if you know how history works, that is absolutely true. Everything connects together and we are in a interesting pivotal point because we have all of these meetings coming we have the meeting in Vilnius which is not already the divisions are there Stoltenberg has just been reappointed NATO Secretary General because they can't agree on anyone else that's the only reason as I understand it people don't even like Stoltenberg very much even no, with the guy is yeah. I don't remember any uh NATO leader who was competent. No. I remember uh, Lord Robert Robertson at some oh, point yeah. of time. I remember him and, very well. Yeah. Oh, God. And um, I I wrote it in one of my books. Yeah. The guy was doing the war gaming with some leaders of future leaders of yeah. NATO, you know, those kids from universities. Yeah. And they were discussing um, how to deal with the Crimean bridge and also how moving the Navy to deal with that into the Black Sea. You read this and like, dude, if you think that you can, uh, apart from the fact that Turkey obviously will not allow it, but there is another issue there. You get your ships into the Black Sea with the attempt to do something (laughs) against Russia directly. They're not going to go back. There will be nothing to go back. They will be all sunk. And yet they were still playing this yeah. as if, uh, you know, and you look at this, it's like, good God, people, they are. Yeah, but, but hey, listen, I wrote the third book. I'm writing the fourth book. Jesus Christ, look at these elites. Yeah. Many of them are morons, literally. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like they are projecting them. They are morons. Yeah. They are complete morons. They have now this Richard Haas, the globalist and, you know, who are, uh, is retiring from the Council on Foreign Relations. My question is, show me anyone there in Council on Foreign mm-hmm. Relations. All those military and diplomatic, you know, professionals from high mm-hmm. level who can talk subject mm-hmm. matter on the real international relations, real economy. For mm-hmm. them, many of them, as you, Alexander correctly stated, it's, I know for some in Pentagon, it's just absolutely cognitive dissonance. Russia produces smart munitions, high-precision munitions, several times more than combined West altogether. Yes. I'm yeah. talking about high-precision munitions, you know, all yes. those laser uh, GLONASS-guided things, you know, just mm. 
all those things of this nature and they still cannot like yeah that's why for now what 10 months russia is running out of missiles yeah it's like sure yeah it's like and now you have the guys from i believe newsweek a couple of days ago were like oh no cs csis uh, like why russia will not run out of missiles yes. really welcome to the party pal you yeah. know well, it, was a, it was a very interesting article, actually, because it, it, it had this brief moment of enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, they're not going to run out of missiles. But the rest of the article, if you actually read yeah, it, actually, it, it's, it's right. terrible. I mean, I mean it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely terrible article. You know, that the Ukraine's air defense system is actually better now than it's yeah. ever been. Oh, my and gosh. All, 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 all those sorts of things. It's which risky. anybody who follows events can see that this simply isn't the case. And the Ukrainians themselves are saying this simply isn't the case. But, you know, if, you, if he, he has to, he has to, well, the author of this article has to somehow get past this admission that the Ukrainians, or that the Russians are going to continue producing missiles. He's got to sort of pad it out with, Paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. Yeah, it's a coping. Coping. It's a yeah. coping. And this is like yeah. again, yeah. Uh, everybody saw what happened to the best United States can provide. Yeah. It's the Patriot yeah. Pack Three. It's a goner, you know. And they were complaining yeah. that Russians use the fake targets. Hello, pals. This is war. This is how you fight war. You fake things, you know. You send fake targets. You allow you to, uh, you know, uh, use your part of your uh, combat load on them, and then bang, you have the either Kinjal arriving or you know a caliber. That's it. That's how you fight the war. Yes. And they they still cannot understand this. And again, the worst thing which could have happened to them was, of course, Gulf War. Yeah. They truly begin to believe that, oh, my gosh, we are so good. You're not. Yeah. And that's the, the whole thing. And uh, that completely poisoned the doctrinal development. That completely poisoned the political level of the mm. United States, which still yes. think, uh, I, again, I quote General Latif, my favorite quote of General Latif. Uh, Major General Latif, PhD in physics, 20, uh, 20 years at DARPA. And he writes in his book, and I quote, most of what American public and political elite know about the war is from the entertainment, from yes. Hollywood. This is what they know. Yes. You cannot explain some political scientist who is now senator what it means, what those things mean, what yes. those weapon systems mean, how they operate. Tactically, how they have the impact operationally or strategically, they have no clue. Those yeah. couple hour uh, seminars or what is the Congressional Research Service does to them, they, they probably don't even read it. They don't. Have oh no, they don't. No, they don't. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can tell you there's something, Mandra, and this is this is my last point of the evening. But as somebody who's worked with politicians, including by the way, politicians in government, especially on international affairs. The primary place where they get their information is from the media. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are there is international. There is there. You know, some of them do get briefed by the intelligence services. I mean, yeah. the president does. The prime minister of Britain does. But it's the majority of them. They get it from the media. I mean, they they go to the Guardian or the Telegraph or the Financial Times if they're British, yeah. or the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal if they're if they're American and they read it there. And then they go off and they give 
the interviews and they just recycle what they've read. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's how it works. And, and this isn't something, by the way, that I'm speaking. I'm, I'm guessing. I know it. <laughs> I've actually seen it for a fact. Anyway, that is my last comment. Uh, Andre, you've been an amazing guest as always, enormously informative. I have to say I have been over the last uh, year or so on an incredibly steep learning curve. And you've been one of my best teachers, if I can say. So thank you for coming on this program. Oh, I'm, now going to pass, I'm now going to pass on to Alex. And Alex, no doubt, has his questions to ask you and he's had points to make. Yeah, uh, Andre, I know that you have uh, an appointment uh, coming up. So just do a hard stop. Just let us know. I when, have about 20 minutes. Yeah, so just let us know. Yeah, let us know yeah, when you need to go. In, then uh, I'll, okay. uh, my Great. son will go meet them. Great. Yeah, they work Great. on the 4th of July and we okay. can pass on this. Uh, okay, because we have we have a lot of uh, questions addressed to you. So let's, uh, let's try to work through as many as we can. And as always, we will uh, do a dedicated show to answer the mm -hmm. remaining questions. First off, from uh, Ricardo, your new book. When, uh, when is it available? Uh, it will be finished once the, I will see the decisive end to the special military operation. It is already at kind of on the nearing the decisive end, but once it's done, uh, the book will be finished. I obviously cannot write events as they unfold and pretend to be a scholar. I need to see some results in the end. I know what they will be, but I want them happen actually, a fate accompli from which I can start writing the rest of it. All right, great. A shout out to Gonzalo Lira, absolutely. And uh, Raphael says, England is playing with fire. Russia will not be kind to England. Mm. Ukraine is treated with kid gloves. England, Russia wants to fight you guys. Um, I don't know how England, whose armed forces can feed into the new Wembley and still have place left and which has only one brigade, combat capable brigade. I mean, whatever, England, let's face it, United Kingdom is not a premier power anymore. And mm -hmm. all those references to the London city banks and all that, it doesn't matter. Just mm -hmm. look at the, for example, issue of the insurance. I remember those uh, sanctions and, oh yeah, if London doesn't insure shipping, okay, Russia has uh, economy several times larger than UK and, and you know, washed in cash. So what Russians did, they started their own state insurance for the shipping. So simple. I mean, it's so simple. Listen, when your home is defended by the best weapons in the world, and you have the best army in the world, you know, it's so easy to do those things. It's so easy to say, no, we don't want a dollar. We want you and ruble. It's easy. That's what people do not understand. Iraq is difficult. Libya, Gaddafi, uh, their army was a toy army. So there you go. You know what Gaddafi... Mm -hmm. Russians can go tomorrow and say that uh, dollar is dead. It can go and screw itself. The only reason Russians don't do it because Russians are not interested in collapsing America in the most dramatic way. Because it's going to affect everybody. But you can see yourself what Russians do. Uh, what, can, what, what can NATO do against it? Nothing. What is the West planning to do with Turkey, Andre, now that Erdogan has decided? Oh, gosh. 
I don't know. It's uh, but I'm pretty sure Erdogan has his own ideas about what he wants to do with Turkey and <laughs> Turkey uh, future if it wants to remain the independent state and it's going to be in the Eurasia obviously. They understand that. So mm -hmm. they really do. Then Turk stream and all that stuff. Come on. I mean, they have I mean, obviously, we have to keep in mind the huge Turkey immigration to the European Union. But uh, uh, strategically speaking, I mean, both from the security point of view and real economy, which can help Turkey to overcome uh, the issue with the lira and all those economic wars which it suffers. They are not in Europe. They are in Eurasia. And in the end, they know that in the end, that will be their BRICS bank, which will issue them privileged credit to deal with the issues which they have, as opposed to International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, which will be basically trying to enslave them even more. So Erdogan is not stupid. He's shrewd. He's very cunning, but he's not stupid. Mm. Two-part question from Alan. Knowing the Ukrainians are going to try to make an offensive against a nuclear plant, how come the Russians did not move the component away to Russia. The Russians withdrew from Kherson of fear of Ukrainians destroying the dam. Well, now the dam is already destroyed. Shouldn't they go back and take Kherson? Why? Kherson is actually a ghost city. I will start with this. It, uh, it has no uh, strategic uh, or even operational importance right now. Antonovsky Bridge is destroyed. The attempts of the amphibious landing by Ukraine have been prevented with, again, huge losses for Ukraine. So what to do in this Kherson? It's a ghost city. Many people forget that when Russians abandoned Kherson completely on their own volition, mm -hmm. they took with them more than 120,000 residents of Kherson. Many people do not understand that those who wanted to be with Ukraine, they were left there. But huge number, huge percentage of Kherson population moved with Russians. Now, considering Zaporozhye, I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure Russia did all necessary uh, preparations for any kind of contingencies there. So I think so. Zaporozhye plant is fairly safe. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about Zaporozhye. Do you think the ZMPP is heavily fortified from attack? I'm pretty sure the Russians obviously know that. Yeah. Um, Elena says, I wonder how many weapons are circulating in the protest in Paris that were destined for Ukraine. The Ukraine conflict is an incubator for instability. A lot yeah. of articles talking about the weapons yeah. in yeah. Paris, there, in France. There were American weapons, all those sniper weapons, uh, high-powered uh, uh, rifles, you know. So, yeah, obviously, it's going to spread. It's going to spread. A lot of it is already on the black market. So, well, the United States wanted it. So, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Serge says, please ask Andre what he thinks about the Russian war correspondents like Rybar, whom Alexander likes to cite. Thank you. Rybar is a fraud. He's most likely the Ukrainian asset. He's moron. He graduated some uh, language, military language institute. And the guy is, uh, he, his name is Svinchuk. Uh, he's complete fraud. I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so there you go. And sometimes he actually works in favor of the armed forces of Ukraine and Kyiv regime. So completely discredited and ignorant man. But um, wants money, wants money, no doubt about it. Bauke says a big hello to Andre and to Seattle in general. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, Tish says, Andre is a wealth of an OBS military info to get past MSM's collective. West lies. Question, can the Russians protect the ZMPP from the Nazis' full-scale attack? 
Theoretically, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't think so. Russia will. Uh, Russia has means and resources to do that. But we have to look at what really gonna be transpiring there. Really, it's difficult to say right now. You know so. From uh, Mobius, a bit, if not a lot, off topic. When sadly China and Japan, on the U.S.'s orders, go to war for the last time, will China simply exterminate Japan? What will China do to Japan when they come to blows? There is a lot of questions about what your what you think is going to happen with China in general in the U.S. Andre, what is? Um, I think um, I think Japan alone will not go to do anything with China. Uh, it will be only on the United States prodding it to do something stupid. But th then it will be still. Uh, they will try to do a second Ukraine, you know, out of Japan or Taiwan, for example. But I I don't know how this scenario is realistic. NGS says, after the counteroffensive fizzles out, will Russia pursue its goals by force or, if possible, by negotiations with the U.S. and the West? Is any trust left? No trust left. There, uh, and again, uh, Russia position is unchanged from December 2021 and uh, what is mm. called ultimatum, which was presented by Mr. Lavrov. And it very clearly states Russia's political goals roll back of NATO back to the uh, borders of 1997, and then the whole list goes of the security arrangements for Europe. So Russia is pursuing those goals. No, there will be no freezing on the of the conflict. And if any kind of negotiations, quote unquote, will be, it will be dictating of the conditions for the surrender by Russia. And the West will have to only sign the, this paper. Mm. John wants to know, at some point, it seems staying on defense, <clears throat> absorbing attacks actually will cost more than going on the offense and destroying Ukrainian forces. Is this more of a political or military decision? Uh, both. But yeah, that's the point. Russians feel very comfortable at sitting at the strategic mm -hmm. defense now while conducting, where necessary, offensive operations. So yeah, it's all about impaling the remaining. Listen, demilitarization means what? annihilation of the military machine of the uh, of ukraine now military machine of ukraine is primarily nato machine ukraine supplies only cannon fodder ukraine out of its own uh, uh resources cannot produce anymore any kind of weapons it's practically all of it now is the uh nato weapons and you can see yourself there are my gosh dozens of breadless burning there are dozens of leopards you know so yeah they want to send in f-16 so they will be shut down. They want to send whatever. Everything will be annihilated. And again, people forget completely. Russians do not fight with Ukraine. Russians fight with NATO. Ukraine is the de facto member of NATO as a proxy force. And we can see it. Rom V wants to know, does Russia have any jokers or operating on its max? Why the Ukraine military equipment deliveries are allowed? to the front line, generating huge Russian casualties. Thanks. There are no huge Russian casualties. <coughs> the kill ratio is horrendous and gr grossly in favor of Russia. No, Russia is not operating on its max. Again, mm -hmm. Russia fighting special military operation. When Russia starts fighting the war, Europe better run. Dr. Liliana Corridor says, Martianov, level of radiation danger of Zaporozhye uh, NPP. Will NATO send troops? <coughs> Will NATO send troops? I don't know. Level of radiation on Zaporozhye. I think so. It's normal because actually the uh, reactors have been shut down. 
the only thing they want to try to do, obviously, first, it's not easy to penetrate their, uh, actually, the reactor hole itself. Mm. It's a, a cooling uh, pond, which they're trying to attack. So <coughs> if not, said troops, uh, if they want to commit suicide, sure. Mm. Angry Warhawk, <coughs> how did Prigozhin expect to overthrow the Kremlin with 7,000 men? When you are twice spent twice in prison, <coughs> including for robbery of the innocent woman and beating her up, that's precaution, that's what he did. <coughs> Having no viable education and being in fact the criminal, that's the level of the strategic thinking you have. Mm -hmm. Paul Walker wants to know if uh, if Andre could apply to be the UK prime minister. No, <laughs> don't want to. All right. Uh, let's see here. From uh, Ed, Andre made me understand the Russian soul. Thanks. Well, um, I may be a Russian soul and I'm a Russian, but I live in America also for a long time. So for me, it's kind of like duality mm -hmm. of this, you know, so. And but yeah, if I provide some positive feedback, great, you know, so I <coughs> certainly don't expect people judge Russia by me only. Rafik says, great podcast. Andre is quite serious, knowledgeable, and thoughtful. Question. Any chance Russia will finally end this war before the end of summer? There is chance. There is a possibility, obviously. Uh, how probable it is, I don't know. But yeah, there's certainly possible. There's certainly possible. And again, Russia has... Again, we don't know what Putin and all members of the Russia Security Council get on their tables as the security a national security briefing each morning. I wish I was a fly on the wall mm -hmm. on their meeting for 20 minutes. Uh, we don't know. They know so much more than we do. And I, for example, keenly aware that my knowledge of things is no, it's not even 1% of what, for example, Russian Security Council, all those Putin's, Medvedev, uh, uh, Patrushev, Shaigus, Gerasimov, you know, operating with. Uh, I can only imagine what they have from this uh, whole, uh, how to say it, uh, complexity of the intelligence uh, and diplomatic sources coming in yeah. and how it is being processed. So, I don't know, possible. Elza says, Poland and Germany argue who, who will repair the leopards and there are no spare parts. How do they want to run the F-16s? Oh, they want to run them very simple take off and don't return back because that's what's going to happen <laughs> and poland, uh, poland now uh poland now officially states that we don't have the capacity for repair of leopard tanks so poland evidently begins to feel the pinch i would say mm -hmm. and their for, former uh, foreign minister and former uh, now the member of the european parliament have went yesterday on the record that yeah, you know what? It's just uh, pretty bad. Russia is winning pretty much. Yeah. Okay, says, can Andre address the restructuring of the Russian army that started about a year ago? What are we in restructuring? Uh, Russia went on the division structure early, earlier when they understood that all this uh, following American patterns and brigade-based, you know, structure doesn't work for the European theater operation. So Russians have been into the going back to the division structure of the armed mm -hmm. uh, ground army and restoring their armies like first 
shock tank army, you know, and things of this nature. Uh, before SMO, but now it's in the process. Obviously, of whatever mm -hmm. they're on the, uh, you know, uh, other changes, I'm not aware. <coughs> as my friend Vladimir Druhan, who is way more uh, kind of engaged with this, so he might tell me. Edward says, watching from Copenhagen tonight, as always, the Duran analysis in depth, concise and well-considered. Always appreciate your work, as with Garland Nixon, Scott Ritter, Colonel McGregor, Brian Berletic. Thank you for that. Uh, Edward, uh, Mustaf, Putin still considers himself in Russia as European and would love nothing more than to reconcile with Europe, but they are leaving him no choice but to turn east and south. Um, not true. Trust. Uh, hmm. Russians are, in many respects, European people, and actual Europe now is in Russia. Everything good what was about Europe from the age of enlightenment, and uh, which mm -hmm. is completely buried right now in Europe, is now in Russia. And the, I always say that Russia is an arc for European culture and European people. So, mm -hmm. and that's what happens. Now they address issue of the, there are huge immigration. Many people are not aware of this huge immigration from Germany to Russia. And we are talking about not just Russian Germans, we're talking about German Germans. And many people from Europe, they are applying for the Russian green cards right now. So, Paul wants to know, what is your thinking on Z-Storm PMC? Uh, I need the translation of this. I don't know what yeah. he's talking about. Z-Storm, Z-Storm PMC. Uh, Marian thinks Andre understands everything much better now about the Russian military, Prigozhin, and the Western psyche. Very valuable information. Thank you for that. Uh, great guest. Absolutely. From Anas, the problem is that they harass poor nations about dishwashers and microwaves sent to Russia. Everyone will speak to them. <laughs> yeah, sure. And we have a few more questions. We'll go through Andre and we'll wrap it up. Ricardo, I would be interested in getting the Russian perspective on Operation Gladio and how it affected Russian strategic planning. There seems to be talk about Gladio 3 going forward. Uh, remind me, Gladio, I usually concentrate on paperclip uh, operation, mm -hmm. which basically Germanized American uh, strategic yeah. planning. So Gladio, uh, remind me, what was Gladio about? Yeah, I know the operation, it just does escape me uh, this time, you know, so. It, it, it was a form of provocation tactics, essentially, if I can put it in that way, to use a, to use a Russian expression. It belongs to the Cold War. And um, it was, well, how to describe it exactly? It's often talked about today, but it was uh, uh, um, an operation um, it was a clandestine thing. It's all about, if you like, operating intelligence systems behind uh, um, behind the lines, behind formal political structures, particularly in places like Italy, involving oh, yeah, okay, you know, okay. that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, the prime minister, from prime minister, they had. Uh, I don't. I mean, it, it's water under the bridge. Now we have totally different mode operandi for yeah. such operations. So they are primarily through the media. And well, and it, now you cannot do that easily, considering the technical uh, aspect of all that. You literally cannot go to the part of my French bathroom, you know, without being, you know, 
followed by cameras or any kind of signal. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Elena wants to know how important is Odessa? Extremely, extremely important. It's not only, it's a significant city in Russian history. It's a city, the hero of the world great patriotic war. It's strategic city in terms of the access to the Black Sea. And it's just gorgeous, beautiful. Although, of course, the Ukrainians even managed to turn that thing into part of my friend, crap hole. But Russians will not bomb Odessa, so to speak. Uh, uh, in terms of architectural value, it's stunning. It's absolutely gorgeous Russian imperial uh, uh, um, uh, architecture of the 18th and, 17th, oh, uh, 18th and 19th century. Gorgeous city. Uh, Chris says, greetings from Cyprus. A reminder of our... Get together next summer in liberated Odessa. I certainly hope so. And Rafik says, for Andre, what is the most likely outcome of this war? Is Ukraine as a whole be better off as part of the Russian Federation, like Chechnya, to keep to keep it intact, sovereign, and at peace with Russia? Um, Russia doesn't want really to take burden of what is now the Kiev and surrounding districts which probably will constitute completely demilitarized and then Nazified Ukraine. But other than that, uh, yeah, as I already stated, uh, I'm on record. Russia certainly will be building the bridge or to Nikolaev Odessa, the bridge to Transnistria. And in this case, uh, first, again, if Poland would have behaved itself properly, not uh, crazy like they behave uh, uh, recently, there probably would have been kind of tacit behind the scene agreement, like, yeah, guys, you take your Lvov, take your, you know, what is called Eastern Kresy, Vostochny Kresy, what they call. And yeah, Russia doesn't need that part. Who needs it? So, and then, of course, uh, Hungarians probably will attach their Hungarian enclave. But uh, I'm pretty sure Russia will make, make sure that Ukraine as such is not Ukraine. It already doesn't exist at what it was before, but primarily yeah, it will be Odessa Nikolaev. The rest of it, isolated, enclosed, and totally neutral, totally denazified, totally demilitarized. There will be probably some kind of regime or political force installed there because now the, the destroying political regime in Kiev is a officially stated uh, aim both by Medvedev, Patrushev, and even Lavrov. <clears throat> and uh, whatever is left will be this rump of the country, which will be primarily agricultural, you know, so <clears throat> they will have probably, I don't know, 15,000 police force. That's about it. And sure, let them mm -hmm. leave. All right. Final question, Andre from Mobius. Do you think that uh, the war with China is simply fate or destiny? Uh, it's... Um, not fate, not destiny. Uh, there is a probability of it happening. <laughs> and it's not trivial. But how realistic it is, um, I don't think so. United States really has the guts to go at it because obviously I live at the West Coast of the United States and I don't want to die. You know, I still have a couple of years left for me. I want to live them out in relative peace, you know. But <clears throat> war with China is... a uh, Oh, gosh, it's going to be a catastrophe, even if the United States will be able to gain some kind of the political um, point out of it. But I don't believe it, honestly. I, I don't believe it's going to happen. Okay. Well, uh, 
we'll get to the rest of the questions. There are a few more questions, but we'll get to them in a dedicated show. But we covered a lot of ground. Uh, thank you very much to the great Andrei Martianov, to the great Alexander Merkuris, to our wonderful audience and everyone that was watching us from Rockfin, Rumble, Odyssey, YouTube, Telegram, and the fantastic community at locals, the Durand.locals.com. Andre, thank you very, very much. Thank you much. for having me, guys. It was my pleasure and privilege. Really, it and, was. And everybody, Andre's links to his blog and his channel is in the description box down below, and uh, it will be added as a pinned comment. Any final thoughts, Alexander and Andre? And we're signing off for this 4th of July. Well, first of all, I just do want to say thanks very much to Andre. Oh, uh, and it's been an enormously wonderful and incredibly informative host. By the way, on Rebar, um, I've said I've been on a steep learning curve. I used to cite them quite a lot, or him or whoever they are, quite a lot at the beginning. I hardly do any longer. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to go into a discussion about them, but I, I've learned that Rebar is not to be trusted. As no, no. He, he, is, uh, yeah. he does it for... Yeah. ambition yeah. and he does it for money because mm -hmm. obviously the more uh, subscribers you have the more money you make and in order for you to yeah. uh, have more money and subscribers you need to keep people constantly in this tension and whatever it takes and he lies most of the time well the other thing he does which i find absolutely exasperating is he's constantly telling us what the ukrainians are going to do and then they never do it <laughs> that is extraordinarily frustrating and I, I you know i i that is become essentially uh, um about 60 percent of his reporting as far as i can see anyway just i don't want to get <laughs> sidetracked by this the only thing i wanted to say is that when people talk about politics and military things um my own impression, this is perhaps a topic for a follow-up program with Andre, is that in Russia, when decisions are made at the highest level, these concepts are much more integrated together than they tend to be in the West. There is no equivalent in the West to the Security Council that the Russians have, which brings together military, political, people, economics people, all together where they can discuss these things and um, come to decisions. And this sort of absolute separation of civilians and military people that we have, which is probably a bad one, actually, in the West, it is. Doesn't, doesn't function like that in Russia at all. Um, it, it's anyway, I, I think, as I said, this is a topic for a future program and an important and an important subject as well. But just to say, I think we've learned a huge amount from this program. I've been learning an awful lot about how war is conducted. As I said, Andre has been one of my best teachers. And I think I would go along with what the commentator said, that we've learned an awful lot about how the Russian military fights. And no military in the world has the depth of experience and knowledge of war that Russia, through no choice of its own, by the way, has acquired. Well said. And Ignaki says, Andre is a true patriot. Thank you from our host, Midwest July 4th celebration. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, guys. Yes. Thank you. Bye-bye.